Good morning, church. How's everybody? Man, I'm so glad you came to church today. We're going to kick off something brand new from 1 Kings chapter 19. In the beginning of your Old Testament, the first five books of your Bible, we call them the Pentateuch. They're books of law. They're followed by 12 books of history. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings. We're going to go to 1st Kings chapter 19. If you wanted the story of the Old Testament, you only have to read the first 17 books because all of the other books, the poetic literature in the middle, the major and minor prophets, they were all written or revealed during the time of the first 17. Today we kick off a brand new series entitled Behind Family Lines. And Behind Family Lines is about so much more than just family. It's about the pieces and parts of family. It's about everything that's necessary to make family a success in the eyes of God. Behind Family Lines, we're going to deal with singleness. We're going to deal with marriage, of course, husbands, wives, parenting, and we're also going to tackle divorce. What does the Bible say regarding marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Because the Bible is filled. It is a wellspring of inspired revelation to assist us in making the critical and complex and lasting life choices and how they relate to our family. I want to begin today uh, by going over a survey that I came across in my study. It's from the Josephson Institute on Ethics and Integrity in America. The Josephson Institute surveyed thousands of high schoolers across the country, and the data that they compiled, the research that they produced, was very, very compelling to me. I have to begin with a baseline. 98% of those thousands of young people in America, 98% believe character, personal character, to be very important. Okay, did you get that? I want you to remember that as I go through some of these other numbers. Of the thousands of American teenagers, 98% of them said, yeah, character, personal character, very, very important. Now, of that same number, three out of four, 75% said that they would readily lie to parents or teachers if it would help them out somehow. 30%, one out of three, acknowledged stealing from a store within the past year. 64%, that's two out of three, said they cheated on a test in the past year, and 38% of that number did it more than two times. 36% said they regularly used the internet to plagiarize homework assignments. Remember, 98% believe that personal character is very important. Keep reading. 42% say they will lie if it will save them money. 35% admitted lying on this survey. 19% have gone to school drunk. All of these numbers, incidentally, are up from their previous research in 2016, up dramatically. And I conclude with the kind of the linchpin. 93% of students said that they were very satisfied with their personal ethics and character. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't that amazing? It's as though there's some sort of disconnect between what our young people feel, think, and believe and what they actually do. 77% of those surveyed agreed with the following statement. Okay, three out of four agreed with the following statement. When it comes to doing what is right, I am better than most people I know. Isn't that remarkable? 
Isn't that remarkable? Josephson contended that most Americans are just too blasé about ethical shortcomings among young people in society at large. He wrote, and I quote, adults are not taking this very seriously. The schools are not doing even the most moderate of things. Frankly, they don't want to know. There is a pervasive apathy. He ended the article with this. In the end, the question is not whether things are worse, but whether things are bad enough to mobilize concern and concerted action. So I have a question, Grace Community Church. I have a question, parents. I have a question, followers of Jesus Christ. I have a question for those of you who are active in our community. When are you going to step up? When are you going to let your voice be heard? When are you going to lead in your home? One of my favorite political commentators is a man by the name of Dr. William Bennett, Bill Bennett. Bill Bennett served under President Reagan many years ago as his Secretary of Education. He has authored many books. He's appeared on CNN and Fox News for three decades now. Uh, He is a voice to be reckoned with in American politics. For about three decades, he had his own radio morning talk show, and it was quite profound. He is a big man. He is a conservative Roman Catholic. Several years ago, he wrote a book called The Death of Outrage, and in it, he describes the death of outrage in America. He points out that the consistent, ongoing call in our culture to centrism, to pluralism, to relativism, and to political correctness is eating away at the moral fiber of this country. In other words, Mr. Bennett is saying for three decades now, at least, there has been a constant call from politics, education, even many of our churches have gotten on this bandwagon, in education, in entertainment, to pluralism. Doesn't matter which God you worship, just worship the one you choose. Relativism, absolute truth does not exist. You can have your truth and I can have mine. Uh, Globalism, he goes on, relativism, all of these things are eating away at the moral fiber. Moral fiber is based on what, church? Truth, integrity, absolute authority of our nation to which he says... uh, When outrage dies in America, so too dies her commitment to excellence and morality. How can morality exist in a culture that does not believe in truth? How can there be such a thing as moral or immoral if everything is up for grabs, including truth? Years ago, I was having a conversation with a man in our church who was very successful in business. Uh, He has since retired and moved to another state, but this man has lived all around the country, He's been the vice president of some very large corporations. If I name those corporations, you would know them right off. And we were having a conversation, and he said, Mike, good followers tend to make good leaders because good followers demand the right things. He said, Mike, good followers can make good leaders because they demand the right things. You see how that works, right? A follower demands the right things of a leader. When that follower becomes a leader, that follower knows how to be a leader. I fear that in our families, in our churches, in our communities, in our nation at large, I fear that we've embraced subpar leadership, possibly because we've become subpar followers. We're not demanding the right things. 
Parents settle for temporary fulfillment for their children. Just make them happy. Just do whatever it takes to entertain them at the expense of long-term character building. Church members, there are a lot of people, they kind of drift from one church to another, kind of back and forth. They sometimes judge a minister or a ministry based upon its entertainment value rather than the commitment to the life-changing truths of God's Word. Voters all across the country, locally and nationally, they sometimes choose a president or a political leader based only on what he's promised to give them rather than character, virtue, and morality. Again, we may be producing subpar leaders because we become subpar followers. Maybe we've simply not demanded the right things, first in our homes, in our churches, in our community, and in our nation. In 1 Kings chapter 19, 7,000 subpar followers sat idly by while the nation drifted away from God. The central character in the story, and it's one of the best stories in the Bible, is Elijah. Elijah is considered the most powerful of the Old Testament prophets. You probably heard of Elijah, Elisha, the chariot of fire. That's who we're talking about. Elijah once, Elijah once prayed so earnestly that God shut up heaven and the rain did not fall on the land for some time. He then prayed again and God sent a downpour. In chapter 18, which is one of the greatest stories in the whole Bible, Elijah stares down the prophets of Baal. There's a contest, basically, on Mount Carmel. Elijah says, let's see whose God is the one true living God. So they built an altar. I mean a massive altar. And they surrounded it with wood. And the challenge was, who can call fire down from God to ignite the altar? So all day and all night, the prophets of Baal, they, they circle this altar, they chant, they dance. They began cutting themselves in the middle of the night, believing that if they suffered somehow, Baal would have pity on them and answer their prayer. But nothing, no fire. Elijah turns, makes a little mini speech to kind of put the prophets of Baal in their place. He calls, down to, he calls up to God and God destroys the altar and everything around it with fire from heaven. It is powerful. It is the victory of Elijah's life. But in chapter 19, he goes into deep, dark depression. It is quite ironic. The reason for this is because Israel at that time had a very evil king and queen, Ahab and Jezebel. Are you familiar with those names? If I ever get another English bulldog, I'm going to name her Jezebel, because the last one I had, she would, that was perfectly her personality. Ahab and Jezebel were idolatrous, they were unrighteous, they were sinful, they were wicked leaders in Egypt. And Egypt followed them away from God, turned their backs on the one true living God. Israel abandoned her heritage, a rich spiritual heritage. Remember, they're the nation that was chosen by God, formed and developed by God for his purposes, and yet they walked away. So following that incredible, incredible victory of chapter 18, Elijah goes into deep, dark depression in chapter 19. Let's read about it. Verse 1, 1 Kings 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So when the contest was over, not only had Elijah defeated the prophets, then he slaughtered them. Verse 2. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, 
May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Now you would think with this incredible victory just days away, chapter 18 and chapter 19 are only separated by days, not years. Elijah's just conquered the enemy forces. You'd think that when the queen said, I'm coming for you, he'd have said, come on, bring it. But he didn't. He crumbles. Look at verse 3. Elijah was afraid. He ran for his life. I think there's a lesson here. This is part of the human condition. I can tell you personally of mountaintop seasons in my life where things were going my way. It felt like God was right there. And no sooner do you gain a tremendous victory that you slip into the darkest, deepest valley. It feels like God is a million miles away. This is the human condition. He ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. That would have been Elisha. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to the broom brush, to a broom brush. <laughs> he came to a broom bush. There it is. He sat down under it and he prayed that he might die. Man, that's pretty severe. Listen to this prayer. I've had enough, Lord. I've had enough. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and he fell asleep. What happens next in the following verses is God sends an angel to minister him on, to him on two occasions. Twice the angel shows up to feed him, to prepare food for Elijah, to give Elijah instructions, to get Elijah on his feet, to get him back in the game. He points him to a holy city, a holy mountain, and Elijah goes. Skip down to verse, end of verse 9. When he gets there, the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They put your prophets to death by the sword. Watch this. I am the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too. I'm the only one left. I'm the only one still standing for truth in my home. I'm the only one still standing for truth in my community regarding sex and sexuality. I'm the only one still standing for order, discipline, rules, and authority in rearing my children. I'm the only one, and now they're out to kill me too. Jezebel is on the warpath. Verse 11, the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. You see the word Lord, capital L-O-R-D? When you see capital L, usually it's capital L, and then smaller, capital O-R-D, that always refers to the second person in the Trinity. So Jesus is about to pass by. Remember, the second person of the Trinity, Jehovah God of the Old Testament, the Lord, capital L, lowercase, all cap, O-R-D, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Elijah, Jesus is about to pass by. This is reminiscent of what happened centuries earlier, earlier, and Elijah would have been familiar with Moses in the burning bush of Exodus 3. God spoke to Moses from the burning bush. In Exodus chapter 19, if you know the story, God gave Moses a glimpse, just a glimpse of his glory prior to writing down the Ten Commandments. The Lord 
is about to pass by. It's going to be a big deal. Watch. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. Hmm. After the wind, there came an earthquake. Oh, here we go. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak down over his face. He went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then the voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah says the same thing he just said earlier. He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. I'm the only one who's trying to do right. I'm the only one in the kingdom who's standing against the king. And now they're trying to kill me too. God, I'm the only one. Jesus instructs him to go to a specific destination and anoint a specific person as king. Then he tells him to turn to his servant and anoint him the next great prophet in Israel, Elisha. Elisha would be Elijah's predecessor. Then he skipped down to verse 18, and Jesus makes a very, very strange statement. He says, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel. I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. So Elijah's not alone. He felt alone, looked like he was all by himself, but right here, God is assuring Elijah, you're not alone. There are at least 7,000 more who pursue truth the way you pursue it, who care for righteousness the way you care, who chase after the good things in this life like you. You're not by yourself. You're not all alone, Elijah. There are at least 7,000 others. My question to the 7,000 is, where have you been? Why didn't you speak up? Why did Elijah, God's prophet, feel all alone? What have you been doing with yourself? Because if Elijah didn't know that you existed and there were at least 7,000 of you, then I would argue you probably didn't know that each other existed. Come on, 7,000 saints. Where's the outrage? Why is Elijah the only one going, King, you're wrong. Culture, you're wrong. Community, I resist you. How come Elijah felt like the only one? Because 7,000 chose to sit idly by and remain silent. That's a big number. Church, hear me. We cannot sit idly by in, in, in silence while our culture becomes more and more dangerous for our children. You say, dangerous for our children? Mike, that sounds pretty dramatic. Good grief. What are you talking about? Look, I'm not here to argue as to whether or not our culture today is any more physically dangerous than it was to previous generations. There are many, many factors to consider. I'm not here to argue that. I am here 
to convince you of this, and it is big because it's certain. Families are threatened every day by a system that is ethically bankrupt and morally apathetic. I believe that is true as sure as I'm standing here is true. Families are threatened every day, not by a king, not by a leader, not by a politician, not by a police force, not by an enemy really, but by a system. The New Testament calls it the cosmos, the system of the world, the world's system of order. Every family is threatened every day by that system that is ethically bankrupt and morally apathetic. It's happening all around us. All you have to do is open your eyes. The darkness of pessimism, hopelessness, hatefulness has infected the American family. The roles and the responsibilities of moms and dads, they've been handed over to school systems, teachers, guidance counselors, church volunteers, ministers, pediatricians who can assign prescription medications, and of course, governments. Look, if you're a school teacher, my hat is off to you. And there are so many school teachers at this church, and I know so many of you, and I know how much you care about those kids, and I know how much you love your work. If you're a school teacher, my hat is off to you because I know you have to feel from time to time the deck stacked against you. You're never going to win. I've talked to so many teachers in recent months who are that far from resigning. They're ready to quit. Not because they've fallen out of love with teaching or they've fallen out of love with their students or their coworkers. It's because the system, the grind, the goal and desire of trying to help children and young people that is so hampered, so stifled, so perverted and complex by the culture of the system. I talked with a man last week. He said, I've got three years, three years. This is a man been preaching for decades. He said, I've got three years, three years. When I hit that mark, I'm out. And again, he assured me, not because I've fallen out of love with teaching, not because I don't love my students, it's because I don't like the system. I don't like where it's headed. I don't like where it's going. Today's toxic culture is wreaking havoc on American families. Michael Medved is a noted movie critic and an author. He wrote, our children stand to lose a great deal from prolonged exposure to the dysfunctional elements in our current culture. They lose faith. They lose confidence. They lose resistance to the most deadly epidemic menacing our youth today, which isn't AIDS or gang violence or teen pregnancy, but the plague of pessimism that has infected hundreds of millions of young Americans. Dr. Medved says, that's our problem. This plague of pessimism, this darkness that's come over our young people. Now, here's what's remarkable about that statement. I came across that statement in my research this week, and I found out, oh, I'm going to use that. And then I realized he wrote it 25 years ago. Wow. You talk about a prophet. 25 years ago, he saw what we now live. And you see, parents, unlike your parents and unlike their parents, certainly unlike my parents, you cannot count on popular culture as an ally today like my parents did. See, popular culture is not your ally today, parents, mom and dad. It's your enemy. Many years ago, when my parents sat me down in front of a television screen, 
they were pretty sure that whatever we were watching was going to support their values. It was going to stand with them regarding morality, virtue, ethics, and truth. When they sent me down the road, down the neighborhood, to play with other friends, they were pretty sure it was reasonable to assume that the neighbor family embraced the same values, the same morals that my parents embraced. Not so today. Parents feel as if they're all alone. Society and popular culture are no longer your allies. They've become your enemies. And if you're not ready, mom and dad, if you're not committed to getting involved in the developmental process of your children, believe me, the culture, the toxic culture in which they exist is ready and willing. Today's music and entertainment reflects that pessimism. If your child listens to rap music, boy, do I sound like an old-fashioned preacher now. You need to take some time, Mom and Dad, and investigate some of those lyrics. I did that this week. I was shocked. Some of the darkest, most hateful, depressing, perverted, twisted, pessimistic, and hopeless lyrics imaginable. The music that most of our teenagers prefer It's pessimistic, it's hateful, it's sexist, it's perverted, and it's hopeless. So now, what's our responsibility? What am I supposed to do with all of that? Let's look first of all at silence in God's people. What happens when God's church goes dark? What happens when God's people sit idly by in silence? You know, the The silent 7,000 of 1 Kings chapter 19, that's a sad commentary, a sad contrast between the explosion of the early church in Acts chapter 2. See, on the one hand, the silent saints sat idly by and did nothing. They felt all alone. They were isolated. But turn to Acts chapter 2 and you find out that the early followers of Jesus Christ were so vocal, they were so engaged. They were so obvious in their intention and pursuit of Christ-likeness that 120 followers of Jesus in a matter of weeks exploded into 3,000 and in a matter of weeks exploded into 8,000. Compare that to the 7,000 silent saints. They knew nothing of the faith of others. They had no idea their numbers were so large. They had no idea that so many others were faithful as well. How depressing that must have been. No wonder Elijah is defeated. No wonder he's discouraged. No wonder the victory of chapter 18 would carry him on into the day's future. It's one thing I love about this church. There are many things. One thing I love about this church. You're sincere in your desire to engage. When we present a need and we say, look, we've got to give. We've got to solve this problem. We've got to serve. We've got to get involved. We've got to take ownership. You do. And I applaud you for it. When we say we need a handful of men to sign up for lawn care maintenance, give up one of your Saturdays a month to come here while I'm in my office talking with people and having appointments on a Saturday morning, there are men in this church who give three and four hours of their day to mow all this grass, save the church thousands of dollars annually. 
These musicians, with the exception of one staff member, they're all volunteers. The people who took your child this morning, I don't mean took your child this morning off campus. I mean the people you dropped off your baby with, they're volunteers. Many of you, you sign up in one service a month or two services a month. People in Kids Jam, you drop off your children, they're volunteers with the exception of my wife who's the leader and the coordinator. You see, when you serve, I know it's difficult. I know it's not easy. It's not easy to give up two of your Sundays a month. It's not easy while you're trying to meet your own family's needs to try to engage other families and meet theirs. I get that. I get that. But I want you to know you're appreciated. You're loved. We couldn't accomplish any good in this place were it not for the hundreds of volunteers that make it fly. So let me ask you a question, parents. When's the last time you picked up your kid at Kids Jam and looked one of the volunteers in the eyes and simply said, thank you? Hey, thank you. Thanks for putting this time into my kid. My kid loves it back here. He talks about you. Thank you for doing it. When you pick up your child in nursery, once they find him or locate him, Look at a volunteer. Say, thank you. Thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. You know, there are churches all across the country that evaluate their effectiveness from a wide variety of criteria. There are a lot of churches that it's all about, you know, the building, the campus, the expansion, how big are we, how busy we are, or are we, and they feel good about that. We must be on the right track. There are other churches, it's all about the number of baptisms that year. How many people join the church? How many people attend on Sunday? At this church, do you know how we gauge our effectiveness? By the number of lives that are changed. When my staff meets together and we ponder direction and pray over guidance, we're evaluating our purpose and our effectiveness, not based upon how many people are here, but based on how many lives we see changed. I wish we could do a much better job at parading changed lives right across this stage. This is Mike. His life was changed two years ago. This is Susan. Her life was changed two years ago. This is Thomas. His life was changed six months ago. I wish we knew how to do that because there are many, many stories. None of that could happen if it weren't for saints who refused to sit idly by and remain silent. The Elijah of chapter 19 is a far cry from the Elijah of chapter 18. In chapter 18, he's like Superman, the Incredible Hulk, bring it on, right? Chapter 19, he's scared to death. He's like a little mouse. He's frightened. Why? Because he felt like he was all alone. You see, servants are people too. And servants, those who serve, those who give, they're prone to depression when they feel that they're all alone. They're unnoticed for their efforts. Charles Haddon Spurgeon wrote a sermon titled, The Preacher's Fainting Fits. And in that sermon, he states that there's nothing, anything more worthless than a discouraged preacher. Okay, I can get that, but I could certainly add to it. There's nothing sadder to me than a discouraged dad who's finally decided to take his family in the right direction, and he gets nothing from his wife. Zero. Nothing but criticism. No pat on the back. Attaboy. I'm proud of you. You're a good dad. None of that. I think of school teachers, church volunteers, businessmen and women in our community 
who are trying to light it up, and nobody ever cheers them on. Nobody ever says, hey, I'm right behind you. Nobody ever says, how can I help? The motivation, the ministry, the movement, the momentum, it all suffers when the saints remain silent. Here's the second thing to look at, and that's silence in the forces of evil. What about the church's silence? The church goes dark. What kind of impact does that have on the forces of evil, this toxic culture in which we live? You've probably heard it said that the only thing it takes for evil to win is for good men and women to do nothing. Good men and women to say nothing. Good men and women to refuse to get involved, refuse to get their hands dirty. Let me ask you, how will you be remembered? How's somebody going to remember you? The 7,000 silent saints of 1 Kings chapter 19 were remembered for what they did not do. And that's sad to me. Can you imagine being remembered only for what you didn't do? I hope and pray one day that I never stand before your body. We're about to put you in the ground, and the only thing anybody can remember is what you didn't do, what you didn't say. You didn't get involved. Whose feathers you didn't ruffle. 7,000 silent saints were bystanders. They sat on the sideline. There was no aggressive movement at all. They were uninvolved witnesses to their own peril. What about you? Tell you something my work has taught me over the years. We can control very, very little in life of what happens to us or what happens around us. Very, very little. But we can control every bit, 100% of how we react and respond to it. So we can be the church that gripes about the direction of our nation or local politics. We can be that church. We gather together and we grumble with one another. Or we can get involved. We can stand up. We can be heard. 99% of our worries revolve around things that either are never going to happen in the first place or once they do, we have no control over it. So we better focus on what we can do. You see, meanwhile, when we're wrapped up in all of that anxiety over things that we cannot control, meanwhile, we fail to recognize the opportunities we do have for positive contribution, especially with our own family, especially at home. And all the while, the forces of evil, those darkened forces that you're hoping to shield your children from, they grow ever stronger. A.W. Tozer, the great theologian, wrote, that this world is a playground instead of a battleground has now become accepted by the vast majority of Christ's followers. Parents, the world is not a playground for your child. I hope you know that. It's a battleground. And you are on the front line. You, mom, you, dad, you are primary. While the saints in Elijah's day sat by in silence, well, I just don't want to get involved. I don't want to upset anyone. The kingdom sank deeper and deeper into sin and idolatry. Church, do you realize that in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus called us, me and you, if you're a follower of Jesus, we're supposed to be the light of the world. We're the light of the world. We're the salt of the earth. Notice, neither light nor salt do a lot of talking. To light your community simply means to go after what's right, pure, and honorable in your home. 
to light your community. Look, you don't have to be obnoxious to light your community. You don't have to be hateful. You have to wave some sort of sign and stand in protest against someone. You don't have to do any of that. You don't have to go online and argue with morons. Don't have to do that. To light your community, you just have to demonstrate your intention to pursue Christ-likeness as a husband, Christ-likeness as a wife, Christ-likeness in my home. And you know what salt's good for? We're the salt of the earth. You know what that means? That means we are supposed to do our best to make life on planet earth taste a little better to everybody. That's what we're supposed to do. God's not asking you to change the world. He's asking you to light it up. So you say, what am I supposed to do? What do I do with all of this? What in the world? Give me something practical. Number one, turn from your apathy. Open your eyes, church. How healthy our families could become almost overnight if we could get fathers to simply lead in the home. Almost overnight, if I had a magic vitamin and I could give it to all the dads at Grace Community Church, and it would make you go after it intentionally. Remember, you don't have to do it how I would do it, or how they would do it, or how he did it. You just got to choose it and go after it. How healthy our families could become almost overnight if dads became that intentional. Number two, accept your responsibility. Parents, I got news for you. It's your responsibility. Problems and conflict, they're on a collision course with you and your family if you're sitting idly by in silence on the sideline. Parents, it's your responsibility to get active in your faith, to lead in your home, to introduce the God dialogue in your family. It's not my responsibility. God's not going to hold me accountable for your kids. He's going to hold you. And then number three, Revive your commitment. Revive your commitment. Today could be a brand new start. Today could be an awakening of sorts. There's not a person in this auditorium today that couldn't benefit from renewal, some kind of renewal. In a minute when I pray and we close the service, when I'm praying, you could pray. You could say something like, Father, I want to do better at this. God, I want to lead in my home. God, I want to go home and I want to have a conversation with my wife. I want to talk to my husband. I want us to examine the path of our family. I want us to talk about it. I want to do better than I've ever done. Now look, be patient. It's not going to happen tomorrow. You got that, right? But there's not one person here. I don't care how many times you've tried and failed. I don't care if you prayed that prayer last Sunday and failed by Tuesday. There's not one person here that couldn't benefit from that kind of renewal, recommitment. Outrage is dying in American culture. Nobody wants to point it out and say, no, no, come on. That's over the line. Nobody wants to do that. Outrage is dying in American culture because we're too busy to get involved in the moral and the ethical decline of our nation, our community. The American family is drifting in a sea of bankrupt virtue and apathy. Someone said that the epitaph of our society will one day read, this civilization died because it didn't want to be bothered. This civilization died because it just didn't want to be bothered. 
I wanted to challenge you with two ideas today. Number one, if we as leaders in our homes, our families, our churches and communities don't start going after something intentionally that is valuable and eternal, if we're not willing to take responsibility for the direction of our children, our families, our communities, well then the toxic culture in which we all exist certainly is. And number two, I wanted to remind you that you're not alone. One of the best parts of my job is connecting people and reminding someone who's suffering that they're not alone. When a young couple comes to me and says, we just can't get ahead of the curve, no matter how much money we make, we always seem to go deeper and deeper in debt. I love to connect that 20-something-year-old couple with that 50-something-year-old couple who've been there and done that, and they know how to get through it. When a young couple has their first child, and all of a sudden they're absolutely overwhelmed, they had no idea their life was going to change like this, and they ask me for help or guidance or prayer, I love to connect that 26, 28-year-old couple with a 50 or 55-year-old couple that successfully raised five kids and done a bang-up job at it? Why? Because it reminds the one who's struggling, you're not alone, you're not alone. You're not alone. Let's pray. Father, I am truly grateful for such a great story in the Old Testament of a real man who thought he was all alone. Today, in our culture, I'm certain... There are husbands, fathers, there are parents, there are families who feel like they're all alone. God, I pray that you would open our eyes to the realization that we're not alone. Father, help us speak up when we can, speak out when necessary. Help us live a life that inspires others, encourages others. Father, all of these things we pray because we want you in the center of our homes. And we pray it because of your risen son, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. Go make it a great week. I will see you next time.